Good morning, Grace Point Church. It is such a pleasure to be with you here this morning. Ty was supposed to preach this morning, but he didn't set his alarm, so he got me. He's late. He's on his way, but I'm just kidding. But it is a pleasure to to be with you here this morning. My name is Andrew, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Grace Point Church. It is such a blessing to, to be before you all. And before we get started this morning, I have a couple of announcements, so bear with me. First off, Baptism class is March 26th at 9 a.m. in the Yellow Room of the Family Center. Please, if you are considering about being baptized, our next um, baptism gathering is Easter Sunday, April 9th. If you want to be baptized, please, you have to go to that class. That class is required. You can sign up by scanning the third QR code on the seat back in front of you. And even if you're just curious, even if you're not planning on being baptized but just want to know more information, how we handle baptism here at Grace Point, please go to that class. Secondly, our worship night is March 30th at 6.30 p.m. It's going to be amazing. For those of you who have not been to our worship nights, uh, I'm a little biased, but you don't know what you're missing out. It's incredible. Brandon has informed me that there's going to be acoustic sets, and we're going to be doing hymns, and it's going to be fantastic. For those who have been there, you know it is an awesome, wonderful, humbling experience. So please invite your family, invite your friends, and let's come together. Let's worship our God through song with our heart, mind, and soul. Sound good? Good. Sounds good. Now, as we get started, one of my favorite things to do um, in, in the honor and privilege of, of preaching is I like to take a moment. I like to, to still ourselves and pause. It's so easy in our fast-paced culture to just move and try and get through things. And I, I love taking a moment and just asking everybody to, to close their eyes and to, to take a deep breath as I'm going to read the passage over you again this morning, and then I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer. So close your eyes. Take a couple deep breaths. You don't have to worry about anything but just being present right here. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later, he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Lord, Father God, we, we come together this morning in search of love and grace and truth. We come to seek refuge, we come to seek community and counsel. We come to have our thoughts provoked and challenged. We come to have our hearts changed. Finally, Father God, teach us the things that we don't know. Give us what we still lack and do not have, and the ways that we are not like Christ continue making us in his image. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen. Thank you for taking that moment with me. Now, what do you think? What do you think? It, it seems like such a, an arbitrary, simple 
maybe passed over question in today's age for somebody just to say, what do you think? Especially when we take a few moments to reflect on our culture today and and the means of that context, I think we've lost the meaning, the understanding of what this question actually means. You see, with the explosion of social media, with, with internet access, there's so many platforms and outlets for someone to just share what they think. Nobody has to ask you anymore what you think. You can just blurt it out. You can post it all over everything and share it regardless. We, we spew it out, friend and stranger alike, even if somebody has asked us the question or not. There's, there's that end of the spectrum. And then with that end of the spectrum, this idea that we can just share our thoughts, share our opinions, share everything that's bottling up inside of us, I think there's another spectrum where we don't much do, do much thinking at all, if we're honest. If you're like me, we don't do much thinking at all sometimes. And, and it makes me think of when, when I was in college, I had to graduate with 126 credits in a four-year span. And that meant I was going to take a lot of classes that I did not care about, that I had no interest in. There were so many classes that my approach was simply this. Spit out the information, spit out the facts, create as many shortcuts as possible, display the instructions to me so I can do the minimum amount of work to get that satisfactory or passing grade. And there was, there was so much, looking back, um, that I, I didn't think about much of what was going on. I didn't ponder the content that was being taught in those classes. There was not much meditation on the content there. And maybe some of you have met me and talked to me and you're still thinking, well, there's not a lot of thinking that you're doing now, buddy. But I swear I'm working on it. I'm trying. But in all seriousness, the classes just became an objective. They just became something to to check off and get done. And looking at that, I think we have to examine ourselves. Because if we are not careful, our brains make these shortcuts to accomplish objectives. And I believe that we do the same thing in the church today. We come in on a Sunday morning with a posture of, give me the answers, give me the shortcuts, give me the instructions to be a better person, and and give me the, the insight and the wisdom to be a better Christian or to increase my moral aptitude to gain moral value. We, we, we do this just to play the part. But when we leave here, the truth is, it's a lot like all those classes I took. When I walked out of the rooms, nothing ever truly stuck. Nothing ever truly changed. But there were a couple of classes that really made an influence on me. They made an impact on me. I still remember the professors to this day, Dr. Eric Boos and Dr. Kenneth Harris. One taught the law classes at my university, and the other oversaw the entire criminal justice department, which was my major. And they did something that not many other professors could do. They kindled my thought process. And they fed into the fires of my personal contemplation. They weren't there to just give me some information. And honestly, they set up the class that there was no way I was going to pass just by regurgitating some answers and some facts. They wanted us to be thinking, to be meditating, to ponder the content that they were talking about. And trust me, these these gentlemen, they were educated. They were accomplished. They had all the accolades to back it up that I think most of us look for with professors and and teachers and guides. But their gift, truly, I think, was taking the classroom 
and painting the walls with a spirit of curiosity. This curiosity paint, if you will, didn't just go on the walls, though. After a while, I noticed it started to get on me. I would walk out, and honestly, I realized it was impacting me because when I wasn't in the classroom, when I wasn't in that seat listening to lectures and to what they were talking about, I noticed that something was happening to me. I, dare we say, was thinking about all the content that they were sharing with me. It, it, it began running through my mind, and I started talking about it with my peers and my friends, and I started sharing it with other people. And I noticed that after a while, as I grasped it, as I meditated on it, and I thought about it, at the end of it all, it made an impact on how I think. It made an impact on what I believe and how I choose to live my life. This morning, as we continue our season of Lent, and we continue walking through the parables, I believe the parables, this, this idea of thought and reflection, everything that we've done so far, if you've been with us, with Pastor Ty leading us through the parables, it is to invite us to see that Jesus does this amazing thing in inviting us to think about what he's saying. He wants us to think about his teaching and what he is inviting us to do. He wants to think about what it means to be human, what is the essence of human flourishing and what it means to follow him and do the work of his kingdom. So we open up here in Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 to 32. Here at Grace Point Church, we lead, teach, and preach from our Bibles. So please, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles up front at the tables up here. Please take one. That's our gift to you. Also, you can go on the YouVersion app and look up Grace Point Church in the events, but please follow along with us along with us this morning as we go through the scriptures. And I want to lay out the scene quickly for this parable because there, there is some context, there is some content that is valid to what's happening. You see, this parable, we find ourselves in the midst of Jesus' teaching amongst the religious leaders, amongst the Pharisees, and, and the people and the crowds are watching this. And really, he's kind of having a field day with the religious leaders on their, their failure, and, and Israel's failure to, to do some things. But specifically, he's talking to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the time. And Jesus has just entered Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. It's this triumphant entry. Then Jesus goes to the temple. temple. And for those of you that remember, this is kind of his, his drop-the-mic moment. He flips the tables, and he, he kind of um, casts some condemnation on everybody. He says, "'You have made my father's house a den of robbers.'" And he, does, he continues his ministry by doing some miracle work. He, he curses the fig tree because it doesn't bear good fruit. And many believe this to be seen as a condemnation of Israel. And then Jesus is being challenged by the chief priests and the elders, in which Jesus is pointing to, to John the Baptist as being the one who fulfilled prophecy in preparing the way for the Messiah. And we get to the, this parable here called the parable of the two sons when Jesus is still being challenged before the crowds by the religious leaders in terms of his identity, in terms of his authority. And he is teaching amongst the disciples and the crowds. And, and that's, that's a quick recap of what happened. Please go back and, and read these passages because it is crucial in terms of context. But we start in Matthew chapter 21. Verse 28 says, What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. 
And there we, ha- there we have it, the, the, the question we started off with. What, what do you think? Now, the context of this question directed to- is directed toward the religious leaders of the time, but this is actually, if we look at Jesus' ministry, this is a common tactic that Jesus uses regularly throughout his ministry and quite often with the disciples and people around him. We see that Jesus has this posture quite often that he doesn't just give an answer, but rather he invites people to share what they understand, what they think, what is stirring in them from the teaching. We see this in Luke chapter 7. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 50... 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? You see this, he is, he's inviting Simon to answer what he thinks. And Simon answers, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. See, I think we miss sometimes, especially in today's culture, that Jesus is truly inviting us in. Jesus is inviting us in to have a curiosity, a question of what he's teaching us and what it means to follow and be obedient. I think Christianity has a history where it has been presented that God is just this domineering figure. He's this, this dictator that sets up some rules that you have to follow, and there's, there's no room for questioning. There's no room for curiosity. But we see over and over in the gospel accounts with Jesus, that is actually not the case. Jesus often invites people to appropriately question and even have participation and contribution to what he is teaching. I think we see this again in in Luke chapter 10 where he is inviting the contribution of others and he is inviting what they think about the teachings. He says in Luke chapter 10, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And I love this posture. He doesn't just give this man an answer. He responds with, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. I think there's something so poetic here that we need to notice that everything that Jesus is doing is not just to ask me the question, I'll give you the answer. He wants us to work. He wants us to labor. He wants us to invite ourselves and participate into what he is molding our souls to do, to conform to his image. And we need to think about the fact there is a people today, whether we are sitting in this room right now or the people outside right now in the community of Las Vegas that have questions that need to hear the gospel of Jesus. Do they not? Do they not, right? Amen. And I believe one of the most relational and caring ways that you can open the door to that posture is by asking them, what do you think? How often in our culture now do we just give somebody the answer, tell them what we think, what we know, and we don't even take a second to hear them. We don't take a second to hear where they are coming from. 
You see, and I, I don't think it's just what do you think that question itself. It's having this posture to ask clarifying questions. Because again, our brains make shortcuts. We fill in gaps. I think sometimes we need to ask, well, what did you mean by that? What's your definition for this word? Why did you use it that way in this sentence? What is your experience? It's getting more information. It's having a heart posture to listen rather than to speak. Because we all do this. I'm, I'm guilty of it as well, so please hear me. But we all do this where we've had the opportunity to share the gospel with someone. We get kind of revved up and we word vomit all over them right? We just pour it all on. We're like, you're a sinner, and you need Jesus, and did you know he came for you, and he died for you, he saved you, and do you believe, and you repent, and you trust? And the person's like, whoa, 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 I just said, how was your day? <laughs> Is it not the truth sometimes, though? And sometimes we just need to take a moment to hear them and receive them where they're at. See, questioning and listening in the context of relationship is one of the beautiful ways that we can experience, experience God's faithfulness and presence and a way for someone else to experience God's presence from you. Because there are few things more satisfying, at least for me, I know there are a few things more satisfying than when someone I look up to, someone I admire, someone that I have a deep relationship with, someone even more importantly, that I love, who is already competent and able and capable when that person looks at me and sees me and wants to know what I think, when, when they invite me into their life to share some insights and they actually want to know how I feel about something. That genuinely invites my participation. And maybe some of you have this experience, um, I think, in, in terms of how we can open doors and close doors with our posture towards people and seeing what they think. Do you remember as a, a young child or adolescent, for, for some of you, when your parents would be talking with other grown-ups and you wanted to chime in into the conversation and your parent would say, not right now, the adults are talking. Do, do you remember that? I feel like if, if you're me and you experience that, Jesus flips that dynamic on its head. Rather than Jesus saying, not right now, the adults are talking, he invites you into the conversation. And we see it because I can only imagine in this moment, in these parables, I can only imagine that if, if you're the disciples, if you're just somebody sitting in the crowd around and witnessing this, to see a man who's called the Messiah, a man who's called a prophet, a, a rabbi, a teacher, a, a miracle worker, he's clearly doing some stuff right now that kind of puts him in the upper echelon of people, and he's having these discussions with the religious elite, who are like the rock, rock stars of the time. They're like the people that people idolize and realize like they are amazing. And he's having these conversations, and I feel like it paints a picture where they're thinking, I'm just going to listen. I can't participate in this because I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough to participate in these conversations. And I think we see the fact that Jesus stops and says, what do you think? How does this make you feel? What is the truth about this? Who do you say that I am? And so, now again, in this context, in the parable, Jesus is in an exchange with the religious leaders regarding his authority and his identity, but more specifically, the question that they are debating, that they are talking about, is who is acceptable to God? Who are the people that are acceptable to God? So Jesus responds with this, tell me what you think, and tells a parable. And he says, a man had two sons, in verse 28. 
And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. Jesus is already using a similar metaphor, the similar comparison for the kingdom of God that people would have picked up on in this culture because at this point, he has already been teaching with this agricultural perspective, this agricultural mindset to relate to the people by saying, the kingdom of God is like this. And then he would say, it's like a farm, it's like a field, it's like a vineyard. He's using all these comparisons that they would know because this is the type of society that they already lived in which was even similar to the parable we see in Matthew 20, which is the laborers and the vineyard. So he's already used this vineyard language before. And and we have this consistent narrative that purpose, I think what is, is being seen, is that purpose is partnership with God, is for humans to partner with God in doing the work that brings forth his kingdom of justice and mercy, not only in us, but in the world around us. And then we see in verse 28 and 29, the man or or the father, if you will, asked the first son to go work in the vineyard, similar to the language of partner with me, partner in my kingdom and do the work. And he answered, I will not. I'm not doing it. We need to pause here for a moment because I think the magnitude of this statement is, is pretty big in its context. Um, now in our culture these days, if you're a parent, you probably know, it might not be that surprising when your child says no to you. I feel like, kids in here are like, shh. But I feel like now more than ever, um, it's, it's a bit of a shock to me. I'm, I'm not a parent, but I remember being a kid. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to speak for, for others in here, but I recall when I was a kid, saying no to your parents wasn't an option. It wasn't even on the table. The answer was like, yes or yes. Like, that's kind of what's going on. I'm kind of blown away sometimes that, you know, kids rebuttals, but uh, okay. I mean, but some parents are here like, amen. Yeah. <laughs> but it seems now more than ever, children are given more latitude to not do what is asked by their parents. And I think, too, that relates to, to our Father, our Heavenly Father, and sometimes we are children that we, we say no to Him even though He's telling us to do something. So it may be a bit normal now, but in this context, this already would have been something to pay attention to. Him saying that would have sent off some flags. In, in a, a couple of ways that we see that this would have triggered some of the people is the first way is in ancient Mediterranean culture, the cultural custom, the, the, the practice would have demanded that sons honor and obey their parents. And specifically, it was more of an expectation if the son still lived on their father's estate. So it was kind of like if you remember that whole, hey, as long as you're under my roof, you're going to listen to my rules kind of thing. But this was like way past that. It was like, you will literally die out there without living on my estate. So when I ask you or tell you to do something, you, you should do it kind of thing. But the second point, which would have been big for the Hebrew culture at the time, is what commandment is this touching on right here that Jesus opens the parable with? Five, yes, exactly, the fifth commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord God is giving you. So he's, there, he's already opening it up that this, this son is not honoring his father in this situation. So he's breaking the fifth commandment. He's breaking the law. And this is what we see. Jesus is already opening up this degree of, of cultural re- relevance to, to touch on some of the cultural customs 
and the Jewish belief when it comes to the law at the time. And then the verse continues, verse 29, and he answered, I will not, but afterward he changed his mind and he went. The text here doesn't give us a, a timetable on how long the son disobeyed his father because it's a parable, it's, it's a story, but I think we can venture with some holy curiosity is that when, in honesty, we, we read it, it seems instant, right? It seems like it was like, no, and then it was like five seconds later, ah, I guess I'll go do it. But I think really we, we can take it as, that's probably more of our, our instant society, our instant culture, our instant nature these ways. We, these days we, we crave instant results. Even in church, I think we sometimes desire rapid discipleship. We just want to see people growing fast, fast, fast. But we all know life doesn't work that way. I think there would have been absolutely some time in, in taking thought to what's going on. I mean, maybe some of you are in here right now and you can relate with this because you're still praying for that son or that daughter to change their mind and turn back to God and you know it's not an instant process, right? Amen. But we do see here, though, is we see repentance. We see a moment. And dare I still beat on the rock of thinking, I imagine we see the son in this parable probably from the time he said no so the time he changed his mind, there must have been some thought. There must have been some meditation on what the father asked him to do. And he must have sat for a while. I don't think he just woke up one morning saying no and then was like, oh, I guess I'll go work today. I think some time must have taken place in which it weighed on him. It became a burden and he meditated on what his father was instructing him to do. And I say instruction with intention, because sometimes I think in the church today, we create this posture that God asks. And it's like, ah, he's just asking you to do it, but you can say yes or no, and, and he's okay with it. I think sometimes God absolutely is commanding us to do some things. He's calling us to do some things. You, me, he's calling us to work in his vineyard and work in his kingdom. And we might put it in a posture of like, well, you know, I prayed about it, and I don't think so. I think sometimes he's like, hey, like start doing it and I'll close the door if it's meant to be closed and I'll open it if it's meant to be open. We have to walk in a life that lives out the calling of faith and obedience to Christ. And then we continue in Matthew 21, verse 30. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. And, and you, see that you see this contrast in, in what took place. You have this father with two sons. He has one instruction, one command, and he gets two different responses. He gets two different outcomes. And I think there is so much here in, in, in regard to the second son, obviously, but also just sometimes how we need to pause and see there are so many different responses sometimes and so many different outcomes to what God is calling us to. But in regard to the second son, we've kind of seen this before. In the Gospel account of Luke... I think Jesus is hinting at this here. In Luke chapter 6, verses 46 and 49, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? But the one who hears and does not do, do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. We see this, this nature of you might profess something with your lips, but just because you're saying it, it doesn't mean in your heart that you're doing it. 
And we see, continuing in the passage, Matthew 21, 31, which of the two did the will of his father? There it is again. It seems so arbitrary. The question kind of seems throwaway, but, the, but Jesus is sparking the process of thought. He is sparking meditation on what was just told. Based off of what was just said, while he's directing this toward the religious leaders of the time, I think if you're in the crowd and, and you are a Jewish person listening to these teachings, if you're one of the disciples or one of the people following, I think it might be one of those moments where I can't help but expect that everyone present listening kind of had the same inclination. You know when you're listening to a conversation and you know the answer and you're like saying it to yourself before the people are saying it and you're kind of like, it's this, it's it's this. This is the answer. I feel like the people around would have been saying this answer already to, him, to themselves with that little inside voice. And so church, I'm going to ask you, which one of the two did the will of his father? The first. The first. Exactly. The first one. Good job. You're, you're, you're following along. But Matthew 21, 31, we, we see he says, which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. This right here is actually an incredible, incredible statement that Jesus is making in this time. Jesus is taking what they have just said, that is what the, the Jewish religious elite were saying. Jesus takes it and flips the dynamic of the argument back on the religious leaders. I picture this moment kind of like a boxing match where you see two fighters are exchanging some jabs and all of a sudden one of the fighters lands this big haymaker, right? And then all of a sudden you see this shocked, dazed look on the other fighter's face. His knees are kind of wobbly and the, the crowd in attendance kind of makes a whoa, Something big here just happened. I feel like the crowd, the posture, would have heard what Jesus said and been like, Jesus just landed a huge punch. This is, this is a big deal. And Brandon, uh, Brandon was helping me with sermon prep this week, and we were talking through the magnitude of this statement that Jesus throws in the faces of the Pharisees. And for some that aren't familiar with, with church or with the Bible or the, the cultural context of Israel, because maybe you're thinking, I get prostitution is bad, but why do we hate the tax man? Or, or maybe some of you are saying, yeah, I hate paying my taxes too. Go get them, sort of thing. And some CPAs in here are getting a little nervous at where I'm going with this. But in seriousness, the reason being a tax collector brought such disgust to the people is because tax collectors of the time were working on behalf of the Roman Empire to charge taxes to the Jewish people. And if you were a Jewish person and, and a tax collector, culturally it was seen as this horrid, horrid betrayal to your own people. It was seen as this unspeakable thing. It would be like if Ty found out that Angie and his kids are listening to Nickelback when he's not home. It's, it's a big betrayal. It's, it's massive. But in terms of the law, it was because most, if not all, tax collectors, and, and Jewish tax collectors specifically, they were violating the Torah, which is the law that God gave to his people because tax collectors were not regulated in this time on how much they would charge the people. So what they would do is they would charge people interest more than what the Roman Empire had told them to charge. They would pocket the difference and they would make a massive profit off of it and get rich. And nobody, nobody could stop them from doing this. 
Now, stay with me, because you still might be wondering, why, why is that a big deal? Like, yes, they're stealing, this is bad, but why, why is that a big deal? The, the reason this is big is because anyone who referenced the law, they are referencing the Torah, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the five books that make up the law. And the law, now, now I want you to look at Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 17 to 19 passage says, none of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, and none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. Some of you Bible nerds in here are seeing it right now and, and starting to get excited the same way Brandon and I kind of started geeking out this week when, when we were reading this. The law, the law that was given to Israel, what God is saying here is that my people, the people I have chosen, the people of Israel, the people of God are not prostitutes and not charging interest to their brother or sister, which is what the tax collectors were doing. So God is saying my people... My kingdom are not prostitutes and not tax collectors. What is Jesus saying? You see, you see how he is flipping this on its head? He says, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. That, it, that is massive in its statement. He is talking to the people that would have known the Torah, known all the scriptures in the Old Testament, front and back, and studied it their whole life, and he's saying the people of God's kingdom are the tax collectors and the prostitutes and not you. Who is the you in verse 31? Yes, the, the, exactly, the religious leaders of the time, the Pharisees. Jesus is taking the Torah and completely backhanding the Pharisees with it. I feel like there, there's no other way to, to put it to try and, and communicate the immensity, the, the, the magnitude of this statement. But this man, this this. This Messiah, this prophet, this rabbi, this teacher, Jesus, is looking at the religious leaders and he takes the two examples of people specifically being the tax collectors and the harlots, the two people that were literally at the time the poster children for what it looks like to live in vehement disobedience to God. They were using them as the example to people of these people could never please God they're wretched sinners. They're horrible. God could never, ever be pleased with them. They are actually the furthest from God out of anybody, and there's no way that they could ever do anything to, to make things right. And he is saying, they are entering the kingdom of God, and you are not. They are in, and you are out. Now, in, in the, the posture of thinking, we have to stop for a moment. We can't stop here. We have to think about this. Why? Why did it change? What is happening here that has changed this? Because there's a little more to this parable for the context and why Jesus is making such a massive claim. In Matthew 21, verse 32, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Church, he is, he is pointing to something 
huge here. John the Baptist, early in the gospel account of Matthew and early in the gospel account of Luke, if, if you're familiar, John the Baptist kind of gets a lot of play. He, he's, he's kind of a rock star in the first few chapters of, of some of the gospel accounts because John is fulfilling the prophecy of the one who will prepare the way for the Messiah. He was going to prepare the way for Christ. We see this in Luke chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John is literally fulfilling the prophecy of the Old Testament, of Isaiah. He was fulfilling what had been prophesied about preparing the way of the coming Messiah. The point that Jesus is getting at about the religious leaders is this, that when John came crying out in the wilderness and proclaiming the salvation of God, who believed him? Who believed him? The, the tax collectors and the harlots, the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And he's saying... And in making this point that the people that you say were farthest from ever being able to please God are believing John the Baptist. The people that should have known and seen that he is preparing the way for the Christ, you guys are missing it. You guys aren't seeing it. We see it in Matthew 21, 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. When John came in the way of, it says in the way of righteousness, meaning he's coming in the right way. He's making it known what it is to live righteous to Christ. The Pharisees and the religious leaders, they didn't believe him. And the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And I love what R.T. France, the scholar, has to say on this. R.T. France says, The leader's failure was not merely in terms of moral and religious sincerity, but in the fact that they, the leaders of God's people, had failed to recognize and welcome God's saving action, to which the outcasts had eagerly responded. And then Jesus he, he, he continues this in verse 32, this crucial detail. He says, And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Jesus is not saying that, that the harlots and the tax collector's behavior is acceptable. I, I hope we, we hear that and we know that. He is not saying what they are doing is acceptable in God's kingdom. But this is what he is saying and what is true. That repentance is being seen here. That they are believing and repenting the gospel that John is preaching. And something happens for us, church, when we see something, when we witness something, but specifically when we witness the work of God in someone's life around us. That we are experiencing Jesus and we would be a fool to just look the other way to continue saying that we're following and have no interest in participating in the work of Christ. We see Jesus is, is looking at this and, and making this proclamation. And I, I, I go back to the scholar, R.T. France. It says, Even when they saw how the tax collectors and prostitutes were changed by his message, even this was not enough to convince them. 
Jesus here firmly endorses and aligns himself with the message of John. If they had believed John, they would have also accepted Jesus. He is saying, you saw them repenting. You saw them believing in the gospel and repenting of being prostitutes and tax collectors, and yet you still, you rejected it. You rejected the fact that you were witnessing God's salvation, that you were witnessing the work of Christ. He goes, you even saw it. You witnessed them repenting, and that is the point that Jesus is getting at. You saw with your own eyes that the outcasts, that the the people that were the worst of the worst, after John came preaching and baptizing, they repented. Isn't that the, the beauty of the gospel, is to see people who are lost in their sin repenting? and changing their ways, shouldn't that inspire us even more to want to share the gospel and do the work of his kingdom? Even after witnessing the glory of repentance, Jesus says, you didn't change your mind and you didn't believe. Do you remember what they did, what the Pharisees did and the religious leaders did? They, They crucified him for one thing, but I think they did something before that that we all need to be careful of. And we could all caution ourselves. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 18 to 19, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. I think the religious leaders show us that the danger of making excuses so we don't have to follow what God's calling us to. They made excuses. They slew defamation of character to justify themselves, to sear their conscience, to make themselves feel better. Rather than be obedient, repent and follow Christ, they made excuses not to do so, so they could follow their own way. Church, the warning in this parable falls in the error of the certainty that the Pharisees had that they were in. The religious leaders were certain that they were in because they brushed themselves up to look real good, to appear like ones following the ways of God, but they they weren't. They were so far from getting it. The ones that were so certain because they leaned on their works and their outward display of being righteous, they couldn't even see how far out they were. They couldn't even see that they didn't get it. They couldn't see that they were the ones not doing the Father's will not working in his vineyard, and not repenting of their selfish and wicked ways. I think for, for some of us here in our, in our cultural times, because maybe we hear this and, and we can't really relate as much because of the context, I think the caution we all must take in being too sure of ourselves, maybe some of us need to hear this morning that Jesus is saying, truly I say to you, the Democrats are entering the kingdom of God before you. You laugh, but seriously. Or maybe if you're on the other side, truly the Republicans are entering the kingdom of God before you. How many of us hold social political identities as our salvation and we're missing Christ? Many of us have identities in this world right now that we are hanging on so dearly that I'm good because I believe this and I do this and I have this identity and we're missing justice and mercy in Jesus. I think that's what Jesus is talking about. We all must heed the warning of taking stock in our works, our identities, and our outward appearances when secretly we are living a life of disobedience to God. 
We are living a life that is actually in opposition to God and judging others because maybe they don't look the way we believe they should. Some of us in here, I, I think um, we can get very critical of ourselves and, and we're thinking, yeah, you're right, I'm, I'm terrible, I'm the worst, I'm the, I'm the most horrible sinner in the world, I'm not doing the work of God's kingdom, God's vineyard. Calm down, take a breath. Some of you are following Jesus and, and doing the work in the vineyard and I want to say thank you. Thank you for doing the faithful work of the king and the world around you and wanting to make the gospel known and wanting to serve the church and wanting to be here and be a part of something that's so much bigger than ourselves. And some of us are sitting here and, and, need, and, and um, you might think, I'm, I'm, I'm far too bad. God would never want me. God would never use me. I'm too messy for him to, to ever love me. And this morning I am telling you, hear the sweet, sweet song of forgiveness in Christ. That Jesus has said, no, it is actually you I came for. If, if, if you haven't heard it, you actually can be in. You can be in if you want to be. And it is that because among all the times that you said no, even if you might be like the first son who said no and gone your own way, Jesus is saying, there is time for you to change your mind. And go bear fruit in the vineyard of the kingdom of God. Doesn't that sound amazing? Doesn't, doesn't that sound like when you really think about it, wonderful? It's, it's the greatest deal on the planet, really. It's scandalous when you think about it. But it's true. You can repent and you can believe. Some of you are following Jesus as well. And um, maybe right now you're in a season where God's calling you to, to work in a certain part of the vineyard and you're just saying no. Can I, can, I, can I invite you to not only just pray about it, but start walking in steps of saying, Lord, I'm going to answer. And if you close the door, you close the door. But if you open it, you open it. Don't, don't make the mistake of, of hearing this this morning and, and confessing with your lips, but your heart is far from them. Don't, don't walk out the doors and go back to the same way of life where you are not participating in the work of the kingdom in love and devotion to Jesus. Because the beauty of this parable is that repentance and belief is actually available to both sides. It's available, it was available to the religious leaders. Regardless of the side you were on, forgiveness and repentance is offered. So don't, again, don't, don't walk out and, and live a life that's so far from God and just saying it with your lips. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, yeah, I go to church. Yeah, I do these things. No, no, no. Be a part of something. Be in faith and love and devotion and obedience to Christ, our Lord. Because if we do that, if we, if we walk out and just keep living our regular old life, then, then we don't get it. Because church, we are not getting Jesus until we are living like Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, there are so many ways in which um, you call us to, to work in your vineyard, work in your kingdom. But Lord, first off, you call us to repent. You call us to believe. Lord, teach us to lay some things down. Teach us to put you as Lord of our life. Teach us to want to live a life in devotion to Jesus. Keep us still. Keep us patient. Keep us humble. Grow us in grace, love, and truth. May everything we do be done for your kingdom and for your glory. In the precious name of Christ our Lord. Amen.